I have two stories for you and an analogy. Two stories, then an analogy. The first um, story is just a preliminary introduction type of story to set the scene, so I'm going to try and tell it quickly. Uh, this is a story from my experience, actually, when, when I was parish priest here, some of you remember, um, about 15 years ago. And it's not the parish's fault in any way, by the way, but I, uh, and some of you remember, or some of you had some idea, I went through an extremely dark period in my life. I was uh, depressed and, uh, you know, at times I wasn't even really sure that I wanted to go on living, quite frankly. I'm not sure if any of you knew that. And I was very aware as I prayed to the Lord in this situation that um, it really was an experience of the cross. And I remember I was living in the presbytery here where Fathers Dan and Cameron now live. I remember being in there and saying to the Lord one day, um, Lord, if this is the cross, where is the resurrection? I know the resurrection must be somewhere. And within, I think within a few months of that, a couple of months perhaps, I had what I, well, what has certainly been the most significant spiritual experience of my life so far. I can't imagine a more significant spiritual experience, so I... Anyway, it was life-changing. Um, I experienced myself as sort of the state of my soul as going into this, this extraordinary darkness and blackness and aloneness. That's just an image for it to try to impart what it was like, just this absolute lostness with no hope and utterly alone and terrified, quite frankly, experienced myself as entering into that place um, where there's no light, there's no hope, there's nothing, there's nothing except me and I'm alone forever. It's that kind of terrifying situation. And in that space, I had this utterly astonishing, life-changing experience that, and I can't I can't convey to you how I knew, but I just knew that God was there, which was completely unexpected because the very darkness itself was there's nobody here, there is nothing here. I'm utterly alone, but somehow in that absolute despondency and lostness where there was nothing, somehow it became evident to me, and I can't tell you how, in fact, I can hardly even remember, but somehow it became evident to me that God was there. And that changed absolutely everything for me. That was the turning point of my whole life, I believe. As I said, I can't imagine something more significant than that ever happening to me. From that point on, the, every, everything was different. I was able to see that no matter how bad a situation is, no matter how dark, no matter how painful, no matter how wrong, no matter how desperate, my lover is there with me in it and therefore it's okay. The most horrible thing imaginable is okay and it's not just okay, it's actually in a hidden way a little glimpse into heaven, because what is heaven? 
Heaven is where God is, who we will, who will be our enjoyment and our love in all eternity, and that's why heaven is so great. The one who is my lover and whom I love and whom I want to be with, above all, was there in that absolute darkness. I'm telling the story very quickly. As I, as I said, it's not the main point of the homily. The other thing that happened from that point on is I have always felt like, ah, uh, now I know what the cross is. Now I know what the cross is about. Because I look at the cross and I see there what happened to me. And I see someone, God no less, entering into the worst absolute worst, incomprehensibly worst possible situation, and somehow, to the utter astonishment of everybody except Jesus himself, God was there for him. In fact, God is there because he is God, but the Father was there for him, even in the moment when he said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That absolute dereliction and loss in that place was God, and that is the resurrection. That is God, our love and our heaven, present in the worst. And from that point on, the whole universe is transformed. Nothing can hurt us because the worst situation that can befall us is that place in which we discover that which we most desire. Anyway, the point of the story, telling the story now, as I came away from that feeling like, now I know what the cross is. Now I know what it was about. Now, now I know what it means. Now I know how we are to engage with it. Now it makes sense. And that's what brings me to the second story, which was uh, a story that said, Tony, you know nothing. This uh, story comes from a, uh, I had the privilege of doing a pilgrimage to Jerusalem a few years ago, three years ago, and um, Shahan, can I have that? Um, and on the last night of our pilgrimage, we visited this little museum about the Turin Shroud. Now, I, know, I don't know if you, can we have that image up on the screen as well, please? Okay, so I've, I've put it up on the screen because that's a, Bigger version, it's probably almost life-size version on the screen there. This is about an eighth, I think, of full size. Um, now, okay, the Shroud of Turin, uh, and there's very... And, and this museum that we visited the last night of this pilgrimage uh, was about dedicated to the Shroud of Turin. The Shroud itself is not there, of course, it's in Turin. Um, but there was a rep uh, reproduction of the shroud and um, a whole lot of information panels about all the scientific evidence that leads many to say that this was probably the burial shroud of Jesus. Uh, referenced in today's gospel, actually, I don't know if you noticed, but they, they wrapped him in a linen shroud, according, uh, uh, linen cloths, according to the Jewish burial custom. Um, and there's a huge amount of evidence that um, 
that this was actually that cloth. Um, some of you might remember about 15 years ago or 20 years ago, there was a, a deal of con controversy about that. Some scientists carbon dated the shroud and, and it came back as being only sort of 1,500 years old or something. Anyway, don't worry about that because more recently there have been other tests that found flaws in the testing method. The point is not whether or not, I mean, obviously we can't prove that this, uh, that this is actually the burial shroud. Just by the way, this here in my hand, um, I inherited this from my dad, who was a great devotee of the shroud and an amateur expert on the shroud of Turin and all the evidence that says it's uh, the, the burial cloth of Jesus. Um, and, but the, the point is not, we can't be certain it's the burial cloth of Jesus, uh, but what we can be certain of is that it is an extremely accurate and highly detailed representation of a man who was crucified. We can be absolutely sure of that. Incredibly detailed, extraordinarily accurate. I mean, even to the extent that we find, even though the scriptures say that uh, they, that he had the holes in his hands, um, if you look closely at this image, the holes are actually in his wrists. Why is that? Well, the scientists will tell us that, um, that the flesh in the hands is simply not strong enough to hold up the body, that if he was crucified through his hands, it would have, the nails would have torn out of his hand and he would have fallen down. But there's a bone structure in the wrist. If the nail goes through there, it's strong enough to hold the body up. Anyhow, um, when they first photographed the shroud, um, those of you who have only ever known digital photography uh, might be surprised by this, but uh, an ordinary part of photography used to be the making of a digital, uh, of a photographic negative. And they produced a negative of the shroud. Can we have the next slide? Um, which is really striking because whereas the original is this faint ghostly sort of image, when you look at the negative um, where all the light bits become dark and the dark bits become light, you see this really striking representation of, of a human figure um, in the... In, you know, lying as he was in death. Um, so the image on the screen there, on the left is the back and on the right is the, uh, is the front image. Um, now, anyway, back to, this, um, back to this museum in Jerusalem, the Shroud Museum. Um, I wonder, can I just put that down? Oh, yeah, Shahan, thank you. Oh, can we have the face up? Can you see that? Um, that's just a sort of a, a magnified close-up of, of the face that uh, certainly I believe is the face of Jesus um, in his burial shroud. Now, in this museum, when I went into this museum, um, I sort of looked at all the panels and all the displays and most of it actually was really quite familiar because I'd heard it all from my dad. Um, 
But there was one thing that stopped me in my tracks, and this is where I had a significant spiritual experience that I want to share with you. They had made a, a, a carving, a sculpture, of a life-size human figure which they had based on the, on the shroud. Um, so the, the posture, the shape of the body, the shape of the face, and all the wounds, um, which are the same wounds that you can actually see when you look at the shroud up close, were all there shown on this sculpture. And as I stood there and gazed at this thing, you could see all the holes. You could, like, it wasn't, like, painted or anything. It was just white or off-white or something. But you could see the holes in his wrists and in his head and, and in his back and round his torso from the whipping and, obviously, in his feet. You could... And I don't know, it's just, I suppose because it was unexpected and I'd never seen anything like it, I was just so struck by it and I stood there and gazed on it and the, the impression that it had on me was, I've got no idea about this. I just cannot cope with this. I thought I knew what was going on here, but this is so beyond me. I, I couldn't do this. I couldn't dream of doing this. I feel so utterly inadequate in the face of this reality and this event I don't understand how anyone could do it, but you did it. And I was reduced to a kind of just silent awe and amazement and quite overwhelming sense of my own, my own inadequacy. Um, Dan introduced, Father Dan introduced the tridu our triduum last night talking about being ready to be overwhelmed and I thought okay well there's a confirmation what I was thinking about preaching about um, because this was this was just an experience of being overwhelmed by the reality of the cross and I just knew I could not cope I was profoundly, profoundly impressed by my own inadequacy. But at the same time, like, the experience of being inadequate is usually a pretty unpleasant experience, right? Yep. But at the same time, and the more so as I've reflected on that, on this in the years since, it was a strangely comforting experience because in my utter inadequacy in the face of this, I'm saying, I do not understand this. And I am not up to this. And I cannot endure this. I have to back away because it's too much for me. But at the same time, you did it. You did know what to do. 
and you were able to do it. And somehow being in the presence, in, you know, in imagination, in, in spirit, in the presence of the one who did know what to do and was able to go through that, even though it's incompre- incomprehensible for me, there was this comfort in this. Look, it's okay, because someone did know what to do. Someone was able to do it. To give just an idea of what I think this experience meant is my analogy, the third part of the message today. I think it's actually like the experience of a little child. And Jesus says, if we would enter the kingdom of heaven, we have to become like a little child. A little child is profoundly inadequate. Yes? Profoundly. If you put a two-year-old or an 18-month-old child out in the street and just left them there, they'd be dead in a day or two, right? Unless a caring adult, a parent-like figure came along and took care of the child. Profound, complete inadequacy, no way of coping with the world, right? Nevertheless, the little child in the context of mum or dad's care is the most beautiful thing in the world, isn't it? Isn't it just gorgeous and makes your heart melt and you look on that and think, that's just so wonderful? And you see that that inadequacy has become a beautiful thing in the presence of the one who is adequate. And the, think of the little child's experience of the parent. The little child, of course, would never say it, and probably as they get older, they'd never say it. Um, but the little child, you know, the two-year-old, looks at mum or dad and, and just, like, you know everything. You know what to do. You always know what to do and you know how to do it and you're able to do it and I just feel so secure and, and, and relieved, so relieved. I mean, okay, a child doesn't feel relieved because they've never known the opposite. But we adults becoming like a little child are so relieved in the presence of the one who knows what to do and is able to do it in the face of my complete inadequacy and incomprehension and lostness that I find that it's okay to be inadequate, to be lost, to be small, to be clueless, to be helpless, because you, Lord, you were adequate. You knew what to do and you did it in the face of the most difficult, most inconceivably difficult situation that could possibly, human nature could possibly concoct, you were up to it. That's profoundly comforting for us. We discover that actually, brothers and sisters, we're allowed to be inadequate because Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. In himself, he's enough. 
We just need to be in his presence like the little child needs to be with mum or dad. We just need to look to his adequacy, if I may call it that. I want to suggest now, uh, in a few minutes, we'll have the veneration of the cross. And um, if what I've been saying resonates with you at all, I mean, there are many, many ways of approaching the cross. There are many authentic and genuine spiritual encounters that we can have with the cross. But what I would like to suggest, if you want to um, respond to the message that I've been suggesting here, is that as you come up to venerate the cross, try to do that in this childlike spirit of knowing how utterly inadequate you are, but it's okay and it's more than okay, as we look to the one who did it. As we admire, as we honour, as we reverence the one who was up to it, who in that sets us free to be as weak as we are.